Now, to avoid yawning, everyone just do some mental jumping jacks real quick. Get the oxygen to your brain. I'm not the yawner. Nope. You know what Stephanie's I favorite? I never yawn because you're boring. Stephanie's favorite music artist is? Oh, not Yanni. Yanni. Yawn with the wind. Oh, no. Well, get them all out now, guys. Uh, I'm trying to mm. yawn in 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Wild blue yonder. Ooh, yawn of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> We back, everybody. This is the Debrief uh, weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. And this ain't no intro. This is the entree. I am your host, Justin Pardee. And I get my word from the sermon, and I'm Stephanie Keene. And right here, over here with that holistic discernment, it's PMB. Pastor Matt Brown, the PMB. Everyone, this is a uh, beautiful, beautiful morning. Debrief is all we got, and we are excited to have you here hanging out with us for what I think is going to be a pretty wide and wild-ranging conversation as we journey through Luke chapter 20, uh, among many other follow-up items. But before we get into that, we have some incredible, uh, first of all, some sad news. Mm. I just want to let you guys, I, th- here's the deal. I love, love doing the debrief, but personally, I don't even know. I'm kind of at a place where I'm like, do, should I come back next week at all? We received zero rev- new reviews this week. Mm. Mm, that hurts. Not a single one. Well, somebody came up to me at the gym and said that she loves the debrief, but can't figure out how to leave a review, so... That's true. Uh, some great verbal reviews. I don't know how to do it. I've yeah, I've heard some nice verbal reviews. Um, Here's what I would just ask for the if you if there's any love, joy, or can I was trying to quote Philippians two. If you have any, then make my joy complete. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, nailed that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll leave. I'm going to leave the rest of the Bible to you. Why you're not the senior pastor? (laughs) Exactly. I'll leave the rest of the Bible stuff to you today. Here's the deal. Make our joy complete. We would love a beautiful review. Here's the deal. So far, we're hold, still holding strong with only five-star reviews. I got to be honest with you. I would take even a four-star review right now oh, just to have new ones people. coming in. We may get a four-star review after your Bible quote. Ooh. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. That was a four-star quote. Well, listen, so. we do have some other fantastic news and that we have a winner from our first ever The Debrief Contest. Actually, let me quickly verify that. Have we run any previous debrief contests? I don't think we have. I don't think so. I think this is our first ever debrief contest with the brand new, the debrief t-shirts. We asked you guys to post them on Instagram using hashtag the debrief. And we have some absolutely incredible, incredible photos. The uh, winner of our contest, Stephanie, you got to show this to Pastor Matt. I sure do. Comes from at M. Emka Bemka. And look at this caption. She says, Hey, Llama, let me tell you about my favorite podcast. It's her in her debrief t-shirt. Feeding a carrot to a llama, and it's pure gold, folks. Check awesome. out the Absolutely hashtag, amazing. the debrief, and enjoy what we got to experience. As exactly. Well. We will also we'll get that over on our Facebook page. So if you're yeah. not following us on Facebook, search for uh, go to Facebook, search for the debrief, and uh, you'll find that awesome photo. So Emily, we're gonna work and uh, get this episode named after you in some way, shape, or form. We're excited about that. And a very second close um, runner up was from Daniel Collins, who was wearing his debrief shirt when he met Kylo Ren yeah. at Disneyland. That yeah. photo was so Interesting, awesome. both things I'm very afraid of, Kylo Ren and llamas. Really? Oh. Llamas are creepy. I think they're cute. <laughs> they're weird, but they're cute. They're weird. They have long necks, and I think I got chased by one when I was in Peru. Earlier, okay, Stephanie well, was saying... A lot. But I wasn't sure because my brain was swelling because yeah. I had uh, elevation sickness. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got chased by a llama in Peru. It's true. But it could have been from your brain swelling. That's yeah. That is crazy. Well, Daniel Collins, congratulations on being our... First runner up, first yeah. is that first runner up? Is that the nice way of saying second yeah, place? I think so because every yeah. time you like listen to them announcing stuff, they're then the first runner up. You realize not first mm, place, first runner up, which is mm. awful. So sadly, you will not have a, this episode named after you. However, if at some point we ever get like the debrief cupcakes, I promise you can have the first official tasting of the debrief cupcakes. And if that's not a gift, I don't know what is. Right. So here I'll, I will <laughs> have the first unofficial tasting <laughs> of the debrief. I'm sure you will. Yeah. Yes, we all knew that was true. So here on The Debrief, we are taking your questions from Pastor Matt's sermons and as we walk through the books of Luke and Acts this year at Sandals Church. So if you've got questions, we would love to hear them. You can send them in at sandalschurch.com slash The Debrief. Okay, let's jump right in. We got some great follow-up questions. This first one comes from Mark. 
And uh, he says, at the end of the parable of the 10 minas in Luke chapter 19, verse 27, Jesus says, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So assuming that this king represents God or Jesus, that last part where he says, kill them in front of me seems unnecessarily harsh. And Mark asks, can you help give us some perspective on this that's easier to swallow, or do we just need to take that as it is? Yeah. As Christians, you know, we, we've become way too modern in our thinking. The modern world is unable to punish anyone for any crime. Uh, it, it's the reason why uh, the death penalty is becoming more and more unpopular throughout the modern world. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, that guy in uh, Switzerland or Finland, I can't remember, he shot and killed like oh, 73 yeah. kids at a summer camp. And he has a three-bedroom apartment in uh, prison because they don't want him with any other people. And he's complaining actually to the Denmark or whatever government it is that he doesn't, he needs to have rights to see other people. He has like his own Blu-ray player, music and all kinds of stuff. And just like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you have to do to be punished anymore? It's ridiculous. And so um, God, God is not afraid of punishing people. He is not afraid of dealing with people. And so, you know, the king in this story um, goes, to heaven, it's Jesus, he's going to heaven to receive uh, his authority from God on high to return as king. And these people are saying, basically going to God saying, we don't want Jesus to rule over us. Mm -hmm. We don't like him, we don't care about him. And so basically it's a violation of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What they're saying is, and this is what atheists say, this is what even you know many agnostics say, even though they don't wanna admit it, is I wanna be my own God. I wanna be in charge. And the, here's the truth, you didn't make yourself, you don't own yourself, you are God's possession and you are God's creation. And that's the reality. And when you reject God and you disobey God, the consequence for that is death. Because the Bible says, Jesus Christ says this, uh, John 14, six, and a lot of people don't think about this. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Your life, my life does not exist from ourselves. My life emanates from the life of Christ. So if I reject Christ, I'm rejecting life mm -hmm. because life is in him and only in him. And so to reject Christ, to reject the King is to, is to welcome death, hmm. eternal death. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, people don't like to hear that, but that's, that's the reality. Um, you know, not, not everybody's experience in hell will be the same. Uh, Jesus talks about this um, specifically when he has a conversation with Pilate, he says, uh, my Jewish brothers and sisters will be guilty of the greater sin. Hmm. What Pilate did was still a sin, but, and those people who handed him over. Um, and those are the people in this story, right? That went and said, we don't want this guy to rule over us, which is actually what they say to Pilate. He's not our king. Mm -hmm. We don't want him. Right. I mean, this actually happens. Yeah. We don't want him. And those people are going to be dealt with. And Jesus says, it's going to be better for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. So think about it. Sodom and Gomorrah is the cities in the Old Testament that were so wicked, so evil, so awful, that God actually burned those cities with fire from heaven. God says it's gonna be better for them on the day of judgment than for these people who rejected Christ. And not only that, but really uh, worked politically to have him murdered. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, yeah. So I, people just, you know, our, our concept of God and Jesus is so warped by our modern culture that just can't stomach people being held accountable for anything. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can't hold people accountable for any, it doesn't matter what they do. Our culture can't hold people responsible for their decisions, but God can. So this line, kill them in front of me, makes me think, uh, it reminds me of like the old you know, Roman Colosseums where there would be the battles and at mm -hmm. the end, you've got the crowd chanting for mm -hmm. death and whoever was officiating was going to kind of make that decision. It almost sounds like, you know, they're taking pleasure at the idea of seeing death. Is that is is that what's being referenced here with this idea no, of kill in front no. of me? No, what he's saying is I am the king. W whether you accept me or not, I'm the king and you're going to die in front of me knowing that I'm the king. Just like the Bible says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether they believed him or not, everybody's bowing before his authority. And so what Jesus is saying, you can reject me, but one day you're going to be judged in front of me. So, you know, even Muslims who reject Jesus as the son of God believe that he is the judge on judgment day. Hmm. Muhammad is not the judge. Jesus is the judge. You will stand before the great white throne of judgment and Jesus will exercise that judgment. Um, but not only that, as Christians, the Bible says that we're going to judge with him. For those of us who are in Christ, we're going to judge. We're going to help God in the judgment. And so um, we, need, we need to be ready and prepared to do that. All right. Got it. Our next follow-up question is from John Lawson, who asked, you mentioned a couple times, and when you mentioned the creation story and the word 
my Hebrew is terrible or non-existent, tomahov. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's trying to find this word in Genesis and has been unable to. Where is it? Yeah, it's because I'm saying it wrong. I apologize, John. The word is tohu wabohu. I don't know why I'm saying tomahov, but I've been saying that for a while. It's tohu uh, wabohu, and it is found in Genesis 1-2. The earth was null and void. And so here's the challenge. So when the Bible is being translated by William Tyndale, so he's famous, famous guy, Tyndale Publishing, mm-hmm. great guy, great servant of the Lord, he is borrowing from a tradition of translation. And so even when we talk about modern translations, and so the people, you know, the King James who say, well, King James only shouldn't read modern church, they're all borrowing from the history of translation. Nobody just, you know, unless you're a cult, you don't just start with your own translation right. because there are other saints and other Christians who have translated this before. And so the concept of null and void is a Greek philosophical concept. And so what they believed was, and so this is not a biblical concept. It was a Greek philosophical concept that the world was in the beginning was null and void. And so what's the best way to understand that? So if you're a child of the seventies, which you, neither of you are, there were these cool things called lava lamps. Yes, I've and seen so, those. Yeah, yeah. Research okay, so lava lamps. So Google lava lamps. And so that was the Greek understanding of what the world looked like. And so kind of this liquid mass, but Trippy. not really kind of together. But the pro- and, so, and so the problem is when the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek thinking Jews okay. began to translate the Bible, they changed the Hebrew to fit with the Greek philosophical mind. Hmm. And so they, they changed this word tohu wabohu into this word null and void. So it would be easier for uh, Greek thinkers to understand and say, oh, okay, so this God is like our thinking. Aristotle's the great unmoved mover. The problem with that is uh, tohu means wild. Hmm. That's, that's what it means. And so for example, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, when he is watching Jerusalem burn to the ground and everybody being carried, carried off to Babylon, his, his comment about the promised land is that it is tohu wabohu. Now, does he mean that the land of Israel is null and void without form? No, it is desolate. It is a wasteland. It is not suitable anymore for people. And God actually says that he has to give the land a rest for 70 years from the people's sin. The land needs a rest. It's not the promised land anymore. It's, it's a wasteland. And so God moves the people out so that he can move them back in. So what it really means is Genesis 1, 2, the earth is not suitable for mankind. That's what it means in the original intent. And the problem with null and void is that it gives us this picture of this gaseous mass. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not what, the, what it's teaching. And so the Hebrew literally means it's wild. So then we need to go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, created the heavens and the earth. So there's a follow-up question from him talking about if you believe in a gap theory in creation or six literal days. Yeah, so I, I would actually say I probably believe both and that's gonna completely weird him out. So when I say in the beginning, what do you think I mean? What Very beginning mean? of time? Yeah. Okay, you, well, I, I, you don't know what I'm asking for, but I, no. I think you think starting point. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so that's the problem. So the English word in the beginning indicates starting point. The problem is that's not what the Hebrew word means. The hmm. Hebrew word is bereshit, which means period of time. So hmm. here's, here's how it should be translated. Over a period of time, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. So here's the problem. When we translate it starting point, now we're stuck with everything has to be instantaneously created and everything has to like, and, and think about, you know, the ecological systems and all the things that take place for life to exist. Right. You know, and so scientists tell us that these things take a lot of time for there to be an ecological system for things to exist. So when we translate Genesis 1.1 in the beginning and we think in an instant, in a second, Right. God created the heavens and the earth, it creates a huge problem for us. When the Hebrew does not say that, it says over a period of time, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Then Genesis 1.2, God does something very specific for a period of six days. Mm -hmm. He begins to work. And so what I would say is, I believe both that God created the heavens and the earth. He did that. How long did it take? The bare sheet doesn't tell us. It says over a period of time. What's that? You said bare sheet? Bare sheet. So it just, it means, it means period of time. It's, okay, it, you got know, it, got it. Just, it can mean a week, it can mean a month, it can mean years. Okay. Literally, it, the, the word is, it's just, it's just a word that doesn't translate well into English. And so, so then to his question, God does something very specific over a period of six days. And what he's doing is he's preparing the earth for mankind's arrival. And so um, 
that that's just what I believe. And so, you know, the problem with Genesis one is it's poetic. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's not like a literal chronological, you know, it's not a, it's not a reporter like watching a game, you know, in the first inning, this happened in the second inning, you know, that's not, it's, it's poetry. Mm-hmm. And so it's difficult for us to, you know, hold to, you know, everything absolutely literal. And that's why you have Christians that are all over on the map on this issue. And so, and you know, many, many interpretations are fair. What I would say is this, as a Christian, you have to hold to this, God made it. Mm-hmm. He made it. He made it all. He made it all out of nothing. How exactly he did that, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2, you know, through the rest of the verses and then chapter two, which really is two different creation accounts from different perspectives, mm-hmm. but, but it's two different creation accounts right. about the same thing from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, one from kind of a global perspective and the other from um, mankind's perspective. So, you know, Genesis 1 just tells us that he made male and female in his image. Genesis 2 tells us he made man and then he made woman from the man. So it's, it's, it's different perspectives on the same story. Mm-hmm. And so what I would just say is, you know, to be a Christian and to be what I would consider, you know, a legit Christian church, you have to hold to God created the heavens and the earth. I don't think that you have to hold to six literal days, gap three, and there's all kinds of things that people are going to be thinking, what, whatever, you know, because Christians, we argue over everything. Yeah. So what you have to hold to is that God made it. Um, specifically how he did that, you know, um, all we have is Moses's uh, poetry to describe and I think it should be poetry, by the way, because he's describing, you know, it takes an artist to describe an artist's work. Right. And that's what I think, you know, he didn't, he didn't ask, you know, a news reporter to describe, you know, an artist's work because a news reporter is going to give a very different account of the Mona Lisa from a poet, mm-hmm. but a poet's going to give a different account. And so a poet is writing Genesis one and two, and it's beautiful. So, um, so, so that's, that's what I think is. And um, so last week you talked about like this idea of eliminating barriers that coming to the gospel and really right. only focusing on the essentials. Is this an example? Yeah. So, you know, because we, we get into these traps and so here's what happened. Christians wanted to be seen as smart in Greek philosophical eyes. Hmm. So they twisted the Hebrew word to mean something that was culturally appropriate for that day. Like for example, Christians always get slammed because we used to teach the world was flat. Well, that wasn't our idea. Yeah. That was scientists and philosophers ideas. And the church adopted that view to try to seem smart for the time. And so what we need to do is we, we need to quit sticking with culture and stick with the words. Every single word is inspired by God. Because a lot of scientists will completely reject um, Christianity because of the young earth theory. Mm-hmm. Well, the earth has to be, I think Jews say it's 5,000, like 800 and something years old. Mm-hmm. And that's problematic because of carbon dating. And so then we try to fight with carbon dating and how their scientific material is not accurate and this and that. And it's like, look, back off. Mm-hmm. Genesis 1.1 tells you, we don't know how old it is. Yeah, We don't know how old it is, but we do know that. And then here, here's what's trippy. We do know that about six, 7,000 years ago, Homo sapiens showed up and there's no geological record of us anywhere. You know, when we were kids in school, maybe not when you guys, when we were in school, we were taught, you know, that Cro-Magnon man and all mm-hmm. these men, now they're saying they're not related at all. Hmm. So Homo sapiens are a unique species that show up six seven, 8,000 years ago, which is ironically pretty close to the dating of Adam and Eve to us. So, Yeah, I love the freedom that comes with that. You guys, thank you for these follow-up questions there. I, I really like uh, getting into those. Yeah, so there's a great book by Dr. Selhammer. Um, I don't know if he's alive anymore, but it's called- Selhammer, Ge- right? S-A-I-L-H-A-M-E-R. Yeah, and it's uh, Genesis Unbound, an incredible book. And he wrote that because his daughter was a student at MIT. And she came back with all these questions. And he is probably the most um, well-known Hebrew scholar in, in the last 30 to 40 years. And so he wrote this book, Genesis Unbound. And his point is, get back to what the words say, not what we think they mean. Mm. So it's great. That's, book. Really good. That's yeah. awesome. Well, thanks for all the follow-up questions. I really love having those. Uh, let's, let's dive right in. We're going to dive hard into the deep end of Luke chapter 20, where the authority of Jesus is being challenged. So uh, starts off in the religious leaders approach Jesus, and they're saying, by what authority do you do all these things? And Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question first. They can't come up with an answer. In verse 8, Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's what I was wondering. Why doesn't Jesus just directly answer these religious leaders? Because they'll kill him right there. And so he has a specific appointment to die on Passover. I mean, right? He's crucified before the foundations of the earth. He is moving to his death at the precise time. It is a time fixed in all human history. And so he's he's going to be illusionary um, until the very end. 
Okay. So, yeah, that's why. Okay, so then we get into this whole thing where there's the parable of the farmers and there's this whole back and forth, right? Where uh, verse 15 through 16, after renting out his farm, um, the farmer, the, well, not the farmer, the owner of the vineyard sends mm-hmm. guys to work it and then eventually says his, he sends his own son. Uh, so they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do that to them? Jesus answered or asked, I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and leave the vineyard to others. How terrible su- such a thing would ever happen. His listeners protested. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are having a hard time with this story. Who, who's the, who are the farmers that Jesus is talking about? Well, okay, so in the text, they're not having a hard time with the people being thrown out and murdered. They're having a hard time with the tenants of the vineyard killing the son. Oh, okay. So when they say, may this never be, that's what they're talking about. This okay. will never happen, but it is going to happen because Jesus is the son and they're going to kill him. And the people who are gonna kill him know exactly, they, they, know, they, they realize he's talking about them. And so they try to plot and plan to kill him. So what's your question specifically? Well, let me ask you this question. Jesus quotes in response to that, he quotes verses, uh, in verses 17 through 18, he says, Jesus looked at them and said, and this is a quotation, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken into pieces and it will crush anyone who falls on it. So Jesus was quoting Psalm 118 verse 22 here because everybody was, mm-hmm. that was listening and he's responding to them. Um, and the religious leaders take offense at what's going on here. So Eddie Cullen, our, one of our worship leaders here, he said he was looking at Psalm 118 and it's really a psalm of praise. And mm-hmm. then Jesus kind of uses it here in this moment of almost like chastising the religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about... This whole yeah, it, it's it's supposed to be a day of worship. I mean, the psalmist says this is a day show, day of worship when this cornerstone shows up, and and it actually says, and all who believe in this stone are going to be saved. And so here, this stone has showed up, and they're they're rejecting him. And so here's what Jesus is saying: all who reject this cornerstone, when they fall on it or it falls on them, they will be crushed. And so what he's saying is, anyone who rejects me as savior, there is no uh, there's salvation in no one else. There is no hope for you if you reject God's gracious gift of salvation. And that's what's so sad about human beings. I mean, this is how sinful we are. You know, not only do we not completely accept the fact of how sinful we are and how rebellious we are, but we are a, we are we are like completely perturbed and and offended that God would require us to accept his one way of forgiveness. That's mm-hmm. how tweaked we are. We sinned, we rebelled, and now we're upset because we don't think God should have the authority to choose how the relationship is righted. Jesus is quoting the Psalms and he's given them an opportunity, right? This day should be a day of worship, but instead you're plotting to kill me. Instead of worshiping me, instead of believing in me, you're plotting to kill me. But what you think is happening, what you think is gonna happen is you think it's gonna kill me, but what it's gonna happen is you're gonna be condemned to hell forever. Hmm. So, And then ultimately that kind of opens up the door for... I mean, the, the Jewish leaders rejecting Jesus yeah. opens up the door for like us, the non-Jews, us. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and that's why the apostle Paul, and when we get to book of Acts, he repeatedly goes to the Jews, goes to the Jews, goes to the Jews, and then eventually just says, from now on, I will preach to the Gentiles. Hmm. Because he has preached enough. And, and I think he believes that Christ has been accepted by all the Jews who will accept him and has now been rejected by all the Jews who are gonna reject him. And he's gonna move on to the Gentiles. And that's us. Right. Because God's heart has always been not just to save Israel, but to save the nations mm-hmm. and, to, and to love the nations and to be with the nations forever. Because Israel was supposed to be not just a religious sect or uh, you know, a, uh, an ethnic people, they were supposed to be missionaries. They were supposed to tell the world about God's love and God's law, and they didn't do that. They, they focused inward instead of outward. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you know, God raised up the church to tell the world about his son. This is really consistent with the way Luke chapter 19 ends, where Jesus is upset in the temple because they're interfering with yeah. the non-Jews coming to worship. And yeah, and so, God. I mean, that's the thing is it's always been, it's always been a part of, of Jewish history and Jewish teaching is that, you know, God's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And we see this throughout scripture, like with Jonah, Nineveh is more responsive to the preaching of the gospel and repentance than Jewish people. So what, what did the Jews do to their own prophets? They kill them. Mm-hmm. They boil them in oil. They cut them apart. They do all kinds of horrible things. What happens when prophets preach to the nations? What happens when Daniel preaches to Nebuchadnezzar? What happens when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up before God, you know, in a foreign land, these foreign lands are like, oh my gosh. Yeah, even the kings mm-hmm. are. Yeah, they're like, please tell God to forgive us. But when God sends preachers to his own people, the Bible says they're stiff-necked. 
Hmm. You know, and so God's desire and heart was to reach the world. So, and to love the world because the world's a fallen and broken place. Because you have to remember, we all go back to the same family. We all come from Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. So it's always been his people. So those conversations kind of keep happening. So in verses 25 and 26, Jesus is responding to a question about whether or not to pay taxes. And he says, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer and they became silent. So this keeps happening over and over that Jesus is sort of outwitting these religious leaders. What's the... Yeah, he's like basically beating them at their own game. What, yeah, no, because doing? you got to remember the Jews were brilliant people. These Sadducees were the most educated. I mean, the, these guys knew more about scripture than Christians will ever know. Hmm. And they they had confidence in this and they, they would challenge each other. Just like in Athens, you know, the philosophers would gather around and debate philosophies and, and thoughts and ideas, you know, in the temple, they would gather together and debate and challenge one another with theology and understandings about scripture. So they were fairly confident and Jesus just... I mean, just blows them away like they're children. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, they just, they don't even know what to do. And so they think they've got him. And so they've set up these questions. And so that's what Luke 20 really is. It's questions that are intended. So they've met together, they've conspired. How can we trip him up? You know, how can we ask him a question? You know, like if God's, if God's so great and can, can do everything, can he create a rock that he can't pick up, right? They yeah. create these like almost unanswerable questions. And what's amazing is Jesus flips them on them and he answers it in such a way where they're just blown away. And so here, you know, here's this answer is they feel like it's, it's, it's not right for God's people to pay taxes to Caesar. And so um, if he says pay taxes to Caesar, then they feel like they got him. He's a traitor to Israel and he will be stoned by Israelites because he can't be a God's prophet because he's saying we should pay taxes to this pagan, you know, awful, terrible, immoral mm-hmm. uh, country, Rome, um, who's rivaling uh, for God's attention. But if he says, don't pay taxes, then they can turn him into the Roman officials and say he's stirring up rebellion. So they feel mm-hmm. like they've got him either way. And what's amazing is Jesus says, give me a coin whose face is on it. And so they look at it and it's Caesar's face and he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and rendered unto God what is God's. And so this is what's so brilliant about it. So on a coin, you would have an imprint of uh, Caesar's face. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what is then imprinted? What, what has God imprinted his face on? And the answer is us. Right. So go back to Genesis, you know, God created male and female in his image. His image is on us. So give yourselves to God, give your coins to Caesar. And, so it's, and they're just like, oh my gosh, we can't win. And yet, is this whole thing, so Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and we're coming to the end of the Luke, is this whole chapter, they're basically trying to come up with excuses to justify killing him? Yeah, right? they want to kill him. Okay. They're, try, they're trying to figure out a way, because they're bound by laws. And so the Romans did not allow the Jews to kill people, even though it happened. I mean, like they stoned Stephen, right. and that was that was something that wasn't, wasn't good. And so um, they do, from time to time, kill people without, you know... Um, not illegally, so to speak, in the Roman um, era, but they try not to do that because Rome ultimately is gonna crack down on them. You know, you guys don't get to kill people. You have to come to us for that ability. And so they've got to figure out a way to legally kill Jesus. Mm -hmm. And ultimately they figure it out. Yeah. Okay, so then this whole next section is this conversation with the Sadducees. And I guess they're trying to stump Jesus once again to get him right. to try him up the reason. And um, they ask these questions about resurrection. Verse 27 says, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there's no resurrection from the dead. So as you were preaching on Sunday, here's what I was thinking, is that most of the biblical case we hear about for heaven, hell, and you know the new earth really come from scriptures in the New Testament. And what I'm thinking is, what, what parts of the Old Testament Jewish scriptures speak to this idea of eternity that the Sadducees were rejecting. Yeah, so the reality is that eternal life is not a fully formed thought in the Old Testament. Jesus reveals it in its pinnacle thought. And so during the time when Jesus Christ arrived, and you gotta remember, Jesus Christ arrives at precisely the right time. So here's what I would say Christians need to ask is what is it about first century Jews that were so right on? So we always think of them as having things wrong but they had many things right that allowed the Messiah to come at that precise point in time. Hmm. And so there's a lot of things that the Jews were doing right. And there's a lot of beliefs that were correct. They were figuring things out. And that's why it made it the perfect time for the Messiah to come because they're starting to understand and figure out over a period of time what this whole thing is about. 
And so Jesus Christ comes. So the ideas are not fully formed there about eternal life in the Old Testament, but there's there's snippets. For example, uh, Job 19.25, Job says this, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives and that at last he will take his stand on earth even after my skin is destroyed. So he's saying, even after I'm dead, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, which is bizarre, which I think is an allusion to the resurrection. Okay. He says, who myself I shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. He's so excited because he knows his redeemer lives. He knows that even though he dies, he's going to live on. Uh, the same thing in Isaiah 26, but your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise and those who will dwell in the dust will wake up and shout for joy. So we, we see it there. David, when his child dies, his, his, his uh, child with Bathsheba, uh-huh. he, he, he fasts, he won't eat. He's grieving for this child while the child's alive. Then all of a sudden the child dies and he's like, fine. And everyone's freaking out because you would think that he would mourn after the child's dead, but you know, be doing more normal things while the child lives. But listen to what David said. He said, while the baby was still alive, he said, I fasted and I cried. I thought, who knows? Maybe the Lord will feel sorry for me and let the baby live. But now that the baby is dead, he says, why should I fast? I can't bring him back to life, but someday I will go to him, but he cannot come back to me. And so David has Mm -hmm. this idea that somehow there's life after death. He doesn't understand exactly what it is, but he has this deep rooted belief. And remember, David's a prophet. He's not just a king, he's a prophet. And so he's prophesying this belief that, there's something after death. There's life after death. He doesn't know exactly what it is, but he's comforted by the fact that the child he's lost in life, he will hold in the next life. So, so are these these are the kind of passages or Old Testament scriptures that like the Pharisees would say, yes, we believe that something happens after we die, but the Sadducees, like these are the things that they would debate about? Yeah, So, and they would argue very, very passionately. And so, you know, just like our Democrats and Republicans can't seem to get along, the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't get along. And those aren't the only two political parties. There were other political parties. And so, um, you know, things got, got really, really tense. And so the bottom line is the Pharisees are the most against... Um, the uh, uh, against Jesus because they're really not religious. And so, you know, I, I think about like um, the Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Reverend Al Sharpton, and I'm not picking on them at all because they're black. I'm, I'm pointing out that when's the last time they pastored and shepherded a church? Mm. Really what they are is they're politicians. And I think that they're great examples of what the Sadducees were. They really weren't shepherd. They weren't spiritual shepherds. They were, they were politicians. And so what they were threatened by was the political popularity of Jesus. And they just, they're, they're really not interested in life after death. They're interested in life here. And so they wanna shut it down and they want Jesus dead. Mm-hmm. They can't stand him. Mm-hmm. They can't stand him. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they don't like him either, but they agree with a lot of things that he's saying. They agree mm-hmm. in angels, they agree, agree with demons, they agree with the resurrection. Those are the things that they believe in. They still don't like him because he's super popular, but they agree with him. The Pharisees were more interested in actually being shepherds to the people. The Sadducees were just rich, politically powerful people that had figured out how to make the best of a really bad situation. They were conquered by Rome, but they were still really powerful and they got very, very rich Hmm. because Romans allowed them to run the temple. And so they had a pretty good gig and they didn't want to see it destroyed. Got it. So they continue this conversation with Jesus, still talking about life after death. And they get into a whole conversation about marriage and Jesus just replies to their whole spiel that they try to present to him to stump him again and says, marriage is for people here on earth, but in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So can you explain what does this mean for marriage in heaven or in the new world? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk here. I don't know how many questions you guys are going to ask me on this. We'll just keep yeah. So let's start with the issue of marriage. And so marriage is a, uh, you know, something that's temporary. It's not an eternal thing. You know, the apostle Paul says that you know, the greatest things are, you know, love, hope, and faith, but the greatest of these is love. And mm-hmm. so love is what's eternal. Love is what will last. And so there's institutions that God has set up, powerful institutions, things like the tabernacle, things like the temple, um, you know, things like even going to church, those things, as beautiful as they are, they're all going to fade away because the next life will be different. We won't need to go to church and learn because God's going to teach us in our hearts. We're going to know these things intrinsically. Now we'll still have worship, but it's not gonna look like what church looks like today. It's going to be different. We need church now, but we don't need it then. Marriage is something that we need now because the best way to raise a child is in the context of marriage. One dad, one mom, four life raising kids. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But in the next life, God will lead us. God will be our father. 
God will be our teacher and he will be with us and he will take that role of the family head. So right now I'm the head of my family. I lead my family, but in the next age, God is the head of the family and there's one family. We all call him father. We are all drawn together on that. And so marriage is something that we need now. It's something that God instituted for this age. Um, but we're going to, you know, Tammy and I, we're husband and wife in this life. We're going to relate to one another in a different way in the next life. It doesn't mean that we won't know each other. It doesn't mean that we won't love each other. It doesn't mean that we won't be intimate with each other. It means that the way that we interact will be different because ultimately, right, uh, what what makes marriage um, a specific issue for God is the sexual union. The two shall become one flesh. Eternity is about us becoming one with God and us being with him forever and he with us. And so, um, you know, sex is something that God has given us. It's a desire, um, you know, that God has placed in us to want to be sexually intimate because that's the way that human beings, you know, um, come together. I mean, until recently, there's technology now that doesn't require <laughs> right. that sexual sexual drive. But for most human history, the way that children were born um, was a man and a woman coming together in sexual intimacy so that they could be fruitful and multiply. There's going to come a time when there's no more need to, to multiply. Well done, you guys did it, and we're gonna move on. So I think that we're still gonna know each other. We're still gonna love each other. And you gotta remember, like I said in church, the people who love you know, they love their marriage. They can't imagine, they're like, they're sad with this, but some people are in terrible marriages. They're in really, really awful situations. And think about women, you know, women, think about most of the women who've lived in human history. Mm -hmm. They had no say in who they were married to, you know, and it was rough. God's gonna set them free from that. And we need to remember yeah. that. And so it's going to be a beautiful thing. And here's here's why I think it's so important, you know, and, um you know, I think about all the pressures that we face and so much of the pressures we face in this life is, am I beautiful? Am I handsome? And, 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 and really our sexual drive creates so much angst. You know, uh, my wife's always asked me, do you think I look beautiful? Do you? And I'm like, yes, for the thousandth time, yes. Why is that? Because our society is so sex driven, it makes people miserable. It's why women never wanna get old. You know, it's why men, you know, wanna work out and look young, you know, color their hair, even though they're 80 it creates all this pressure on us. And that pressure comes from this desire to be seen sexually desirable. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it's powerful, but it creates a lot of crap. I mean, think about the tension it creates between women, girlfriends, between guys, it makes us adultery. It, it causes as much trouble as pleasure that it creates. And so, you know, sex is a great thing, but it's also a really, really difficult thing to manage. And I think that we need to look at this in the next life is, you know, Stephanie's not gonna have to worry about whether or not she's hot for all eternity, okay? Like you're single right now, you gotta stay in shape, right? Because you, you wanna get married. I mean, that's the desire of your heart, She's right? Those, those are yeah, pressures that she totally. faces. Um, you know, not you, because you're eternally beautiful, Justin. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you don't have wife, to worry about this you know, at all. Almost worships you because you're so gorgeous. <laughs> you know, but for the rest of us, right, we all are constantly in this state of, am I good enough? Am I am I sexy enough? Am right. I am I desired? Yep. And ultimately, God is going to say, "Yes, you're desirable, and I desire you, and I meet that." And that's what's going to happen in the next life. And so, as sad as many of us are to see sex go away, we have to understand that whatever desires we have in the next life, the only reason that you have a desire for sex in this life is because God gave it to you. It was His. It was He's the one who gave you the desire, and He allows you to fulfill it. Same thing with hunger. He gave you the desire to be hungry and that's why we enjoy food. So you just gotta understand that in the next life, whatever desires we have that God gives us, they are going to be met in a powerful and incredible way. It just might not be sexual. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, I don't know for certain that there's not sex in heaven, but the Bible says that the only way we have sex is in the context of marriage. And if there's not marriage, I'm guessing, right, that there's not sex. And so, you know, some people are like, oh, thank God. And other people are like, oh, bummer. So. <laughs> Okay, so this is going to sound like I'm uh, making this up and saying it so that I can improve my current earthly sex life, but I can get down with the idea of, okay, I'm going to go to heaven, not have sex anymore, I, I, but the idea, I mean, I love my wife. Our anniversary yes. is happening this mm. week. The idea that we're not like specially linked up and mm. life partners or whatever for eternity is a little bit like bummer. Yeah, but do I, I not think, love God enough? Is no, that what that comes down to? Yeah, no, you don't love God enough. But you know, <laughs> sure. no, I think you're missing out. You're going to be linked with her in a way that is more intimate than you ever experienced on Earth, hmm. because all of your insecurities and 
you know, I mean, right, we all want to have authentic relationships, but the truth is none of us are completely authentic, even in the context of marriage, because we're scared. All of those things are going to be taken away. And in the next life, you're going to know Lindy in a way that's deeper than you ever knew her in this life. So it's going to be more intimate, not less intimate, but she is not going to be designated you know, you two are going to relate to God as individuals, mm-hmm. not as a couple. And so that's what he's he's saying. And so I, I don't think it has anything to do with a lack of intimacy, a lack of connection. You know, um, I don't think that we're going to have kids anymore. I don't think that's going to happen. So, you know, the drive for sexual intimacy is no longer needed. Hmm. Your kids your kids will already be there. Your family's already, yeah. we, we don't need to do that. So you guys will still know each other in a very, very powerful way but our, our desire for intimacy ultimately is with God. And so, you know, sex, I mean, I don't know this to be true, but sex is not mentioned until Genesis 4 after the fall. Prior to the fall, hmm. the Bible says Adam and Eve are both naked. And listen to this, and they felt no shame. There was no insecurity amongst them. So they were still together in a powerful way, but the Bible doesn't mention sex. Hmm. And so they loved each other, cared for each other, knew each other, were intimate with each other in such a way where there was no shame. Then sin comes and then there's sexual intimacy and God says, hey, you guys need to do this so that you can perpetually create because you're going to die now, right? So why do Adam and Eve have to have kids? Because they're not gonna live forever anymore. Hmm. So now you guys are going to die. So you have to procreate to continue the human race because you sinned. And so therefore I'm gonna give you this desire that you're gonna love, but it's gonna drive you crazy, <laughs> right? I mean, it does, it, it drives you like crazy. Kids. Now jealousy is born, envy is born, all of these things, and right? Look in Genesis, what happens to sex? It, it goes completely awry, hmm. but prior to the fall, Adam and Eve, I think you'll like this, mm-hmm. are both naked, Justin. <laughs> yes, Okay. She so might, Lindy might not like it. It's that. a naked party, yeah. and they're loving it. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's no insecurity. So they're relating to, to each other in some way where they don't know that they're missing anything and they love it and enjoy it. Um, and so maybe, you know, prior to the fall, they were intimate together all the time. And so what now they can only experience in sex was something that they experienced with each other whenever they were together. Hmm. See? So after the fall, sex is a temporary feeling that we share together, but prior to, it's something that we always share, you know? Hmm. So Very, very weird little side note here. Growing up at a pretty small church. There was this couple who every summer, I guess they would go on vacation to a Christian nudist colony, which just seems like <laughs> that's an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah, it seems very strange. That's not real. It seems strange then, but I'm like, he's now I can see him making the case for the fact that he's just getting ready for the new earth. Yeah. The Bible says that you're to remain covered <laughs> okay, so, and please cover yourself. Just yes. yeah, hey, look at that's, yeah. that's why we got these sweet debrief t-shirts available mm-hmm. for you guys at any of our campuses this mm-hmm. weekend. So Jesus continues talking about heaven, the new earth, especially, and he says, they will never die again. In this respect, they'll be like angels. They're children of God and children of the resurrection. So you've told us this many times, sin is what leads to death. And so when we're not going to die anymore, what does it look like to have free will then and make decisions? If sin isn't really an option, what does free will look like? Right. I think we'll be like Jesus. Jesus had free will, but he was able to choose not to sin. Right now we are slaves to sin, but when we receive Christ, right, we are now, we're no longer controlled by sin. Uh, Romans 8 says we're controlled by the spirit. I think in the next life we will be ultimately controlled by the spirit, but we will still have, we will still be free thinking individuals, but sin will no longer have control over us. And I think that we will be like Adam and Eve in the garden with the exception of they had no idea what sin was. We will know what it is. And we'll, we'll, we will know that you, you don't ever want to go back. There's some experiences that I've had in life, some things that I've gone through and done, and it's never a temptation for me again. It was something that initially I was drawn to, and I was like, I want to experience this. I, I, want, to, I want to go there. I want to do that. Then I did it, and I was like, man, that went really bad. That's a great and so way of some, thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, and so something that initially was a draw hmm. because of my experience is no longer, I'm like, uh-uh, I'm never going there again. Uh, and that's what we call a stupid person, right? A person right. that continues to go back and back and back and back. And I, so I think in the next life, we're, temptation is, it's not, it's not gonna be temptation because we're freed from that and we know what it is. Adam and Eve were free from it, but they didn't know, hmm. right? And so to know is to experience. So ex- just like in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife, he experienced her. I'm kind of reminded of like Luke 10 when Wayne Cordero was out here and he was just talking about gaining the gaining this wisdom. Um, 
and leveraging that wisdom to help you make better decisions here in life. And that's what I'm reminded of kind of as you're explaining that concept is that it almost be like everyone having this supernatural spiritual wisdom yeah. that more, you know, accurate, accurately guides the way that we're living in the new earth. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, let's... Paul says, I will know as I'm fully known. So we're, we're going to, our minds are going to be blown. I hmm. mean, we're, you know, they say what humans use two to 3% of their mental capacity. Yeah, I've you seen know, and that that's in like the geniuses. Movie trailers. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but you know, that's what they tell us is that we have not even come close to exercising our mental capacity. So we're, we're going to be brilliant. That's why I keep, you know, hanging around in the desert when it's raining. I'm hoping to get struck by lightning and really tap into the full potential of this brain. Yeah, that's definitely what's going Or happen. you'll drop dead, one of the two. Well, the Lord is with me. <laughs> Man, I'm going to take odds on this one. So, <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's talk about this. We've been going back and forth um, using this language, heaven and new earth. Can can we talk about the difference between those two things really quickly? Yeah, so it's, it's really unfortunate and it's really frustrating. And um, I, I know a lot of our, I can't tell you how many people came up to me on Sunday and they said, why have I never heard this? And the answer is, I don't know. Hmm. At some point, we fell so in love with this idea of heaven that we forgot earth, the new earth. And so all the, here's the entire Bible. Let me summarize the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God wants to be with us here. Genesis one and two is not God created heaven and people to be with him in heaven. God created the earth and he visited us right, and he was down. with us on earth. And so this whole movement, so what's the tabernacle? The tabernacle is God's presence on earth. What's the temple? God's presence on earth. What are the prophets? God's voice on earth. What are the miracles? God's power on earth. What is Jesus's name? Emmanuel, God with us where? On earth. What is the second coming? Christ returning to us on earth. Mm. And so this idea of the new earth is spoken of by Isaiah twice. Um, it's spoken to us by Peter. It's spoken to us by the apostle Paul in Romans eight, when he says all creation groans for the resurrection, hmm. all creation, heavens and the earth, everything's looking forward to this moment for God to remake the earth. You know, not only will we be resurrected, but the earth will be resurrected and it will be completely changed and it will be made new again. Uh, so Peter talks about the new heavens, the new earth, the book of revelations, you know, chapter 22 is the last chapter, chapter 21 he says, behold, I saw the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah prophesied about this. So, so think about in the New Testament, the three major players, John, Peter, and Paul, mm -hmm. all three of them talk about the new earth. And so, you know, that's what people say, what am I gonna do in heaven forever? You're not gonna be in heaven forever. Heaven is a temporary place. And I don't mean that it's temporary and that it ceases to exist, but it's a temporary residence for us. But ultimately what God is building in heaven is the new Jerusalem. And it doesn't stay there forever. Guess where it goes? To earth. That's what Re Revelation 21 says, is that the new Jerusalem comes from heaven. Mm -hmm. And that's what this whole thing is moving. There's no longer a gap between heaven and earth. But God is with his people and his people are with God. And that's the beauty of it. And so we, this is why as Christians, we're not praying for the resurrection. You know, we all want life to not suck. We want people to not get sick. We want people not to die. And that's why we need to pray, Lord Jesus, come. The Lord's prayer, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray for him to come. The Bible ends with Lord Jesus, come, come back. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because even, even our loved ones who've died and are in heaven, there's something even better coming, something that's even greater coming. And that's the resurrection. And that's something that we will all share in together at once. We will all experience it. The church past, the church present, and the church future, we're all going to experience that moment together. You know, when Christ, you know, the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first, boom, and we will be caught up in the air with him. It's going to be incredible. And how can we be caught up in the air with him? Because our bodies will be like Jesus's and he can fly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's right. It Jesus fly, hover, float, whatever he's doing, we can do that too. Yeah. Because we have resurrected bodies just like Jesus. And that's the goal. You and I were designed to live on earth in a relationship with God where we walk with him, talk with him and know him. And that's what we are to experience. But the earth is broken and it's fallen and it's diseased and it sucks. Mm -hmm. And so we need to quit talking about heaven like it is the finished state. The finished state is the new heaven and the new earth where the gap, the chasm between those two is no longer broken. Hmm but we are able to be with God and God is able to be with us. It's like uh, that phrase, heaven on earth, you know? Yeah. Hmm. 
Okay, let's talk about these resurrection bodies that right. you were just talking about. Um, because when Jesus comes back, uh, when he resurrects, mm-hmm. the his followers, they could eventually recognize him, but he also still had the scars in his hands and stuff. So what's going well, on there? I, I would say this. Yes, they could recognize him, but Jesus also seems to be able to manipulate his physical manifestation because they don't recognize him. Then they do. Then they don't. Then mm-hmm. they do. And so he is able in some way... I mean, the word is to shapeshift, right? The, the resurrected body, the glorified body can do things. Um, you know, he can both show them the holes in his hands and somehow he is able to not be seen. It, 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 it's truly amazing. I mean, his glorified body can do incredible things, absolutely amazing things. So let's think about this. So we're gonna talk about the resurrection. He was completely wrapped in a shroud. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Shroud of Turn. Have either of you guys seen that? On Wikipedia. Okay, I saw it firsthand in Brasilia, which is the capital of Brazil in 1987. I'm telling you, it freaked me out. Hmm. And so what the Shroud of Turin is, is there was a crucified person in this shroud. So think like a sleeping bag. Mm-hmm. So it's put over the head of the person, and not as thick, but it's like a sleeping bag, maybe a cheap, thin sleeping bag that's put over the head of the dead person. And then they're wrapped in this thing um, like a knapsack, like a potato sack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, if parts fall off or rot off, right, it's all in the bag mm-hmm. and, and decomposes together. But somehow in some way, the Shroud of Turin, this body was heated up in such a way that it actually took a photograph of the corpse on the inside of this shroud, this this blanket. And then they flipped it and inverted it and you can see it. And it's a bearded man with holes in his hands and his feet. Whether this Jesus, I'm telling you, I, I'll never forget it. I felt like I was in the presence of something. It was bizarre. Hmm. So here's what his resurrected body did. It moved through his mummified gar- garments. Mm-hmm. He, trans- he transported from inside the bag to outside the bag. Awesome. And that's why we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to when the, when the disciples and Mary see the empty tomb. There's a couple words, uh, Greek words for see. One is blepo which I always think is funny. Um, one is theron, and I can't think of what the third major word is, but we'll get to that when we get to Luke 23 and 24. But it's interesting that whenever Mary looks in the tomb, Peter looks in the tomb, John looks in the tomb, the word that is used for they saw that it was empty is theron, which is where we get the English word theory. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell us? They're trying to figure out what the heck happened. Like it was because how does a dead corpse inside a bag get outside the bag with the bag still laying there. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're, like they don't, they don't, they can't, it doesn't make any human sense. And thank God it's, it's not a human event. It's a supernatural event mm-hmm. that occurred in human history. It's pretty cool. So his body is resurrected. And so this is what we all want to experience. We want to experience resurrected, glorified bodies. Paul talks about this repeatedly. And so they have all the texts over and over again. We look forward to our new body, our new body, our new body, our new body, because we're not made to be spirits. We're made to be embodied spirits. Our spirit lives in our body. This is who God has created us to be forever. You know, I'm gonna be a man forever. Stephanie's gonna be a woman forever. This is who we're going to be. And we're going to know each other in this way. Um, you know, Jesus is still a man after he's resurrected, but somehow he's different. Mm-hmm. Okay, you talked about shape-shifting and all of our sci-fi geek listeners who watch The Fringe are like freaking out with excitement right now. Yeah. So let's shift gears. And Stephanie, you do one for the Instagram girls. Uh, yeah, so when you talked about heaven in this weekend's message, you actually mentioned a lot of Isaiah 11, which I think is what you're talking about, yeah. where Isaiah prophesies about uh, the new heaven and the new earth. And in verse six, it says, in that day, the wolf and lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with a lion and a little child will lead them all. That sounds like every Instagram caption I've ever seen. Hashtag cute. <laughs> yes, there's some really great videos out there. Anyway, so actually Davina sent this question in and I have the same question, which feels silly, but I also saw the Jungle Book this weekend, so it may be influencing yeah. me here. But in this new earth that we have, will we have different relationships with animals? Like, will I get to finally hang out with a lion like a pet? Yeah, and- absolutely. So if you go back to Genesis 1, Adam names, one of the one of the jobs that he has is to name every animal on earth. And, and we don't realize that, but in naming it, he has authority over it. And so Adam exercises authority over the creation. And so one of the things that we were made to do is we were made to rule and reign on earth. So we were to be God's kings and queens on earth, 
but sin screwed that up. And so again, what does Jesus tell to his disciples? You will rule and reign with me. And so we're going to enter into that relationship again, where we're not at conflict with uh, you know, animal life and not that, you know, all animal life is conflict, but if I'm in the water and a great white shark swims by and is hungry or There's curious, gonna be right? Conflict. It's going to eat me. But somehow in some way in the new heavens and the new earth, if there are great white sharks on the new earth, uh, and we don't know, you know, because there does seem to indicate that there was from John's perspective, as he saw the new earth, he could not see, see. So mm-hmm. uh, part of that's because, you know, I don't know his perspective of as he saw the new Jerusalem, but it's right. massive. It's like the size of like Texas to Idaho. It's huge. Hmm. The new Jerusalem, the city is absolutely massive. So yeah, I think we're gonna relate to animals in a very, very different way. We're no longer going to be under the curse of sin. It's gonna be cool. Hopefully there's no snakes though, right? Because yeah. literally Satan doing snakes, I don't see any redeeming qualities with those guys. Yeah, yeah they might be there because there's some snake lovers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll live in the city. Jerusalem, yes, definitely, yeah. definitely I will. Okay, so now we're going to get to some little verses here at the end of Luke 20 where I, I really have no idea what Jesus is talking about with the religious and Jewish leaders. In um, verse 37, it goes like this, but now as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they're all alive to him. What's going, what's going on here? Uh, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jake, Jacob, are they dead? Are they in heaven? Are they alive? Yeah, no, they're alive. What is so he talking about? You got to go back to Genesis 1 when God breathes the breath of life into Adam. So, you know, God creates our bodies and he breathes life into our bodies and he animates our bodies. So as human beings, we are two things. We are both spirits and animated bodies. And so those two things work together. When we die, our body is in the ground. And so here's one of the things that Christians say that bothers me is they say, when you go to my grave, I'm not there, I'm in heaven. But the reality is you're kind of in both places. Mm -hmm. Your body, which is a part of you and Mm -hmm. who you are and is essential. Okay, your body's not evil, it's not ugly, it's not terrible, it is sinned, it, it is a body of dishonor, but it will be redeemed. It's a part of the redemptive process of Christ. And so, you know, we need to care for our bodies, love our bodies, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, so we, we need to care about that and, and treat them with respect and honor. This is why we don't just have sex with whoever we want. We don't do whatever we want to our bodies. We care for them because our bodies are a gift from God that is given to us and God values our bodies so much that he's going to resurrect them and glorify them and transform them in some amazing way. So God's not done with your body, so you should honor it. So here's what I would say. Isaac, Abraham, or excuse me, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, can't say them out of order. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are in heaven with God and they are alive. Their spirits are alive. Now, you know, what they look like in heaven, you know, we don't know exactly. There's three theories. There's three Christian acceptable theories. One is that, the, the moment that you die, immediately you receive your resurrected body. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have resurrected bodies in heaven. Okay. Number two is there's a temporary uh, covering that's given to them somehow, some way. And uh, some people say bodies, some people say robes, white robes, whatever. There's some kind of temporary covering to give them because the apostle Paul says, I do not want to be naked. He's talking about being in a bodiless, bodiless state. That's not what we're supposed to be. And then number three, um, the idea is that we are all, all those in heaven are alive in the spirit. Their souls are alive. They're with Christ they're in the presence of Christ. They're conscious, they're awake, but they wait for uh, the, the resurrection to receive their body. The position that I hold, and I think the, the position that's, that's the most clear in scripture is that the resurrection day is for everyone and we will all receive our bodies mm-hmm. at the same moment. And so um, I don't think that you get your resurrection body when you die. Right. I think that your spirit goes to heaven to be with Jesus as you await his second coming and you pray for a second coming. You're in paradise. You're, you know, if you're in Christ, you're in a wonderful place, but you still are longing and waiting for the return of Christ. Both those who are dead and in heaven are waiting for the return of Christ and those on earth are to be praying for the return of Christ. That is the redemptive moment in human history. That is what we are all waiting for is the resurrection. And so... Um, now, having said that, um, when Jesus has the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear and somehow, some way, the disciples are able to decipher, you know, Peter, James, and John are able to decipher that that's Elijah and that's Moses. Mm-hmm. So what was that? 
I don't know. Well, Did, to be fair, I think Moses is always walking around in heaven with those two tablets. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Remember, yeah. it's kind of my deal. Remember, yeah. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so you know, um, you know, we don't know exactly what what that was, and it doesn't tell us. Did they have literal bodies? It just simply says that they appeared, and they knew that it was him. And in that moment, the, the emphasis is not on what. Elijah and Moses looked like the emphasis is on what Jesus looked like. Mm -hmm. He changed. So they were present, but Jesus changed. And his transformation was incredible. He was bright and as shining as the sun. Hmm. So in that moment, all of a sudden, Christ's physical nature kind of disappears and his eternal nature kind of jumps out. Hmm. And And they're terrified. And then God speaks, this is my son. And it's just like, wow. So, so I, I don't know if it, I kind of liked that option number two that you were talking about, because I, I really like the idea of like bathrobes and stuff, but I've yeah. never been able to get to them here. Like I can't get into a nice bathrobe yeah. here in this, on the, the fallen earth. Can't, well, like, I, it just doesn't the... work for me. No, it just doesn't work for me. So I'm, I really like the idea of maybe in the new earth, a nice solid bathrobe. No, no, soft. no. On the new earth, you'll, new have, earth a body. you'll have a body. Oh God. So, so but if I die and go to heaven, maybe I can temporarily wear like a luxurious heavenly robe. Yeah. There you go. I'm into that. Right. And so, and again, we're talking, I mean, you're asking me questions that are theoretical. We don't know, but Paul seems to indicate pretty clearly in second Corinthians that his desire is to experience the resurrection. That's what we all want. We all want to be a part of that in change, being changed in the twinkling of an eye to go from a mortal body to an immortal body, to go from a dishonorable body to an honorable body from imperishable or from perishable to imperishable heat that those people that get to experience that are blessed. Hmm. Uh, but those who are dead will not miss out first because the Bible says they will rise first. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we will all be caught up with him to meet him in the air. Heavenly cloth talk back to uh, Stephanie, the Bible there. <laughs> so this chapter wraps up with now Jesus asking a question. And he starts off with quoting um, one of the Psalms. And he says, for David himself wrote in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Then Jesus says, since David called the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? So when I read the Psalm, I would not know that David was talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. How can we tell when there are places in the Old Testament where it's directly referencing the Messiah or Jesus? How do we know that? Or how do we know if Yeah, it's the best else? way is the New Testament tells us. So the New Testament will identify those passages mm-hmm. that um, were specifically speaking to Jesus, but the New Testament is not going to identify all of them because Jesus says all of the Old Testament is about me. So he's he's there he's there throughout it. So it's all about him. But there are specific passages where it says. But what's interesting here is they never thought about that because David calls his son my Lord, and that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how can that be? And so Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, in, in Hebrews chapter one, uses the very same argument to tell us that Jesus is above Moses because he was above David. He's above angels. He's above everything. Why? Because he's God's son. He is God himself. And this Mm -hmm. is something that's incredible and something that's awesome. And so, um, because, you know, the Sadducees, right, for everything they knew about the scripture, the Pharisees, everything they knew about the scripture, they didn't get it all. And and, and let's just say this, we're not either. We're not going to understand it all. And that's what's so sad. You know, even people listening to this, um, you know, I think back to the guy whose question was, you know, are you gap theory or what? We're always looking for questions to divide us. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, man, we're all going to be wrong on something when we get there. We're not going to figure this thing out completely. The Apostle Paul says, we see things now through a dimly lit mirror. We're doing the best we can, but, you know, it doesn't, it, 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 we can't know everything exactly. Right. And so, you know, there's going to be some things where I had some ideas. I'm going to get up there and be like, oh, okay, I was wrong. <laughs> so we just have to embrace that and just know that we're going to miss something. Yeah. So just don't miss the big things. The only way you can be saved is by repentance and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. There's no other way. Deal. Yeah, down. Excellent. Well, this was all awesome. Luke 20 was jam-packed with goodness. And I, I loved opening up with all that follow-up questions. So if you guys have questions that have come up from this, if uh, you got anything specific you're wondering about, please send in those questions. You can uh, send them to us at sandalsearch.com slash the debrief, or we've also added our new The Debrief page on Facebook. So you can find us there. Just trying to make it easy as possible for you guys to follow the show and uh, get your questions in. So if you're not liking us yet on Facebook, yeah. definitely search for us and look us up. Yeah, I'm let sure me liking us. They yeah, let me close with one like. thought. So, you know, as yes. you share some of the things that we've just talked about with some of your Christian friends, even some of your friends who are pastors, and I hate to say this, even professors, there's a lot of confusion on this subject because it's just not studied. Mm. They just don't study it. And so, you know, there's a lot of confusion 
with talking about heaven and what they're really talking about is the new earth. Mm-hmm. And so there are specific passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 60, that, that talk about the return of Christ and he's clearly on earth. All the nations bring their wheat, they bring their cattle, they bring you know all of the things that they've worked for and they're bringing it to Jerusalem to worship God. And so, um, but, and that's on the new earth. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and they just, it, it's really, really sad, but I, I, I've seen pastors that have you know, taught for a long time and they're not clear on this subject. And so just, you know, don't go browbeating people over the head with this, but this is the teaching of scripture. Mm-hmm. This is what the Bible teaches. You know, we're gonna go to heaven for a period of time until Christ returns to rule and reign on earth. He is to be our King. And part of the reason that the Jews miss Jesus is their assumption was that the Messiah would come and rule physically on earth. Mm-hmm. And he will, but he first came to save. So he came as the lamb and he will return as the lion. And so they just got it out of order. And so as Christians, we forget that, that he's going to come here and he's going to rule here and he's gonna reign here. And the new earth is going to be awesome. It is going to be free of sin, death, and sickness. So for folks who maybe would love to like read more on this, you mentioned Isaiah 60. What are some other chapters or maybe books in the Bible that people could read to maybe start to understand this? Yeah, Isaiah is the best book in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 11, Isaiah 60, Let's uh, see, Isaiah talks about the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 66, uh, twice in Isaiah 66, 17, Isaiah 66, 22. Um, Second Peter talks about the new heavens and the new earth, Revelations 21, which we studied. Romans 8, though, I think is the best place to go for kind of an overarching view of what God is doing and where he talks about all creation moans and groans. And, and, and I think it's talking about how everything is going to change. And it's going to be incredible. It's going to be awesome because Jesus Christ didn't just come to save us. He came to save all creation because he is the author of all creation. Colossians says he created and designed all things. And for those who struggle, you know, how's my, how's my body going to rise from the dead? Man, listen, how did God make the first one? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're talking about someone who can do anything. Nothing is impossible, Jesus says for God. Nothing is impossible. And he created the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything in it. And he can do anything. We have no idea how powerful God is. Well, speaking of impossibilities, it's time to close the show. Mm-hmm. Because here on this broken earth, sometimes we need a little inspiration, a little motivation. Stephanie, will you close us out with an inspirational thought? And then Pastor sure. Matt, give cool. us some great. Yes. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, we picked this one out ahead of time. Nothing is impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. <laughs> I don't know where you guys get that. The internet, it's a beautiful place. Uh, lots of things are impossible from our perspective. Nothing is impossible from God's perspective. So I don't like the idea that people can do anything because I don't think that's true. I think that actually makes people very depressed. Like I can't make an NBA basketball team. It cannot happen. Oh, I believe in you. Thank you. But that's silly. <laughs> yeah, that's silly. Yeah, the only the only way I'm making a, a, an NBA basketball team is if God transforms my lonely body into a glorious body. I wish our listeners could have seen your face when you just like paused to receive, like to say thank you. It was like you were so touched when Stephanie believed in you. Yeah, yeah we say the stupidest things to people when we when we tell someone they can do anything. That's like lying. You can do anything, kids. So that yeah. was not his nope. face of like, oh, she believes me. It was, oh, she just lied straight to my yeah. face. Yeah, because people can't, every single human being has a limited set of abilities, skills, and experiences. And happiness is not doing anything. Happiness is is accepting your abilities, your skills, you know, your brain capacity and serving God within that context. But, you know, people that are miserable, like what, what if I believe I can make the worship team? It's going to be horrible. Probably fit you in. We may not turn your mic on, but yeah, yeah. Write, write that on a napkin and stuff in your kid's <laughs> lunchbox. He's going to appreciate that. Sorry, kid. Nothing. No, what possible. I would say is you can do amazing things with your abilities, your gifts, and your talents as you submit them to God. You can do amazing things. Mm-hmm. Somebody put, put that, that on, on a nice a, little printable. Yeah, somebody put that on Instagram. Oh, printable, yeah. dude. Yeah, let's get Matt that. Brown on says you can do amazing things, but you cannot do every, anything. So. Ooh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That could that we can not just do a printable of that. It could be an actual card where the outside says you can do amazing things. Open it up. You cannot do everything. Love, yeah. Pastor Matt. <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling good, like you knew I would. Let me hear you scream and shout. Ooh, ooh.